Uh, welcome back to the Revolution Ideology Podcast, the Myth is America series, uh, and we are just jumping right in because this is actually a continued episode. This is part two of the episode on the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, we left off with a, an amazing mic drop from a primary source. Uh, it was a poem by Phyllis Wheatley um, that kind of gave us a window um, into the life of what uh, basically the transatlantic slave trade meant to the oppressed and subjugated individuals on board. And we're just going to, again, dive right in because this is, this is just part two, more or less of the same episode. So we're going to keep going. And one of the things that we had left off or kind of lingering in the last episode was this idea that uh, maybe perhaps the Bible was used or manipulated in various ways to subjugate people. And then we asked questions regarding how could human beings do this, things like uh, the iron muzzle, as we discovered uh, in the last episode, to other people. Well, now we're going to talk a little bit about ideology, which is an entire class we teach. We could do a whole podcast on that class, but we don't need to. I want Nick to come in and explain to us uh, about ideology and specifically about racist ideology and how it helps uh, the oppressor, in this case, rationalize his horrible behavior and create cognitive dissonance and how it can also lead to the subjugation of the mind of the oppressed. So have at it. So I'll use the most absolute basic definition of ideology that uh, we can probably come up with. Uh, just the term ideology and its history is incredibly complex. I do an entire lecture on it in our ideology course. But for like my intro students, the simple definition I use is an ideology is a belief system that justifies the way things are. <clears throat> so it's a way of viewing the world. It's beliefs that help to justify social arrangements. So in this very specific case, when we're talking about the slave trade and slavery in uh, North America uh, during this period, racist ideology is a belief system that justifies slavery. And we have to think of it like that because I think it's not typical when you're getting this in your K-12 through education uh, or even at some other point. We don't really go into depth to think about how people justified these actions. Uh, because it takes a, like Jared's favorite term, mental gymnastics. It takes a lot of mental gymnastics to be able to justify doing these types of things to other human beings. Um, so this ideology, I mean, just to put it bluntly, people have to invent a way to view the world that justifies these actions. And so one of the things that they invent is racism, specifically in North American slavery. Like Jared gave us in the last episode, there are other versions of servitude and slavery, uh, like indentured servitude as a result of debt or slavery as a result of being uh, defeated in warfare, etc. Those didn't really require as much ideological construction because there were reasons for those things. You were either in debt or you got conquered in war, or the other example we had was uh, you were convicted of a crime. So there were reasons for your servitude or slavery in those cases. When we get to the unique type of slavery in North America, there's no real reason for that. You were taken, stripped from your homeland, as evidenced by the primary sources that Jared gave us in the last episode, and then put to work. You were not paid. There was no chance of escape. You were a slave for life. And so the atrocities that you experienced and the atrocities that were committed by the oppressors had to be justified ideologically in some way. So 
I think a really good example of this, if you go back, if you haven't listened to it already, is the Invention of Whiteness episode that we did, I guess, now two, three, four episodes ago or something like that. It's just titled Invention of Whiteness, where I go through the history of how sort of the white race is invented throughout through the laws of the Virginia colony um, and how those racial distinctions come into being. It's just inventing, it's inventing racism. And that has everything to do with dehumanization, uh, subjugation of a population of people, uh, invention of laws surrounding the different races, uh, any unequal resources and allocation of those resources and access to those resources uh, based on skin complexion, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the function of this racist ideology is to justify the slave system. And that's the history of how racism comes into being in the United States. We have a very unique form of racism in our country that harkens all the way back to slave society in the colonies. Other countries obviously have racism, but they many of them have different types of racism, and the history of their racism is different uh, than we have here in North America, uh, specifically in the colonies, and then what later on becomes the United States. The vast majority of our racism links back to uh, this invention of this ideology to justify slavery uh, in the colonies. So what else do you want me to add on that? I think that looks pretty good. I mean, basically, yeah, that's 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 part of, again, the rationalization process and cognitive dissonance of the oppressor. It also, of course, ideology can then be implemented and used as a weapon. It can be weaponized to more or less subjugate the mind of those, right? Not just the body, the mind of those serving uh, the oppressor in this case. So, I, I mean, I think you hit on it. Now, I want to talk about examples of ideology um, at play during this time period, how ideology was constructed. And my students have to deal with this all the time, but my argument, and I'll repeat it here, I've probably said it in prior episodes, is that ideology, so ideological imperatives, the way we uh, think, the way we speak, and the way we act, that's what ideology does. It informs that. None of that is wholly original. As much as we want to think we're individuals, you don't have any original thoughts, nor do I. All of it is socialized through ideological imperatives. Um, anyway, those ideological imperatives are constructed or founded upon stories, narratives, and not just always like, again, narrative entertaining stories. Sometimes our, what also would qualify as story is production, any production of knowledge, right? Science as a narrative construct or religion as a narrative construct or um, philosophy as a narrative construct. All forms of knowledge qualify under my general understanding of what story is. Anything that we can view and socializes us into buying into a system that is predicated on ideological values qualifies as narrative. Um, so I want to go through a couple of uh, the examples from this time period, this transatlantic slave time period, that the oppressor used to rationalize and justify their horrific treatment of these human beings. I want to really kind of couch that in this idea that how let's let's make up a fictitious person i think i did this with maybe columbus or whatever let's let's call out a, a portuguese slave trader wakes up one morning kisses the fam goodbye shakes hands with some friends gets on board the boat super nice normal rational dude and 
a few weeks, months later, he is literally ripping children from their parents to lives of forced servitude. How does that happen? Well, our answer to this is ide- it's ideological. That's how it happens. And so that's what we're going to focus on here. We're going to focus on three different pieces. The first one I want to focus on real quickly is the I'm debating which one I want to focus on. Let's pick on the philosophers at first. We like to think our Western philosophies are so advanced and, 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 and I'm here to tell you they're not. They're, they're kind of laughable in many ways. Um, at least these enlightenment thinkers. I'm still a big fan of the ancient Greeks, but that's a whole different story. Regardless, these enlightenment thinkers, one of which is highly respected in Western philosophy, his name's David Hume. And David Hume does have some interesting things to say regarding human nature. Uh, uh, and the production or passing down the epistemic pr- uh, process of knowledge. I, I don't want to denigrate this man's entire body of work, but I do think we need to call him out as a mover and shaker in the philosophical world here, when in 1753, he produced a work called Of National Character. And he added a rather startling footnote as he is going through how national characters are constructed and the identities of people. This is what he has to say, though, in this interesting little footnote in 1753. David Hume says, I am apt to suspect the Negroes and in general all other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds to be naturally inferior to the whites. There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even any individual eminent either in action or speculation. Holy shit, David Hume, you ignoramus. That's me, not him. Now back to him. There are no ingenious manufacturers among them, no art, no science. So I'm going to pause again in this quote. That is willful ignorance on his part. At this point in 1753, the colonial process is well underway. It's reached its peak. They've been to places like India and seen things like the Taj Mahal. They've been to Mali and seen Timbuktu. They have seen these amazing things. And David Hume may not have gone on these journeys, but he's heard about this. He is still manufacturing a narrative that is complete hokey. This guy, unbelievable. He goes on to say, on the other hand, the most rude and barbarous of the whites, such as the ancient Germans, uh, cute British, German, whatever, like rivalry there, the present Tartars have still something eminent about them in their valor, their form of government, or some other particular. So this guy is trying to like make these macro arguments about all of humanity, and he says, even the worst white people, that's, and this is what he's saying, even the worst white people, even if they're bad, still have something good about them because of what he says, their valor, their form of government, or some other particular. He can't even think of another thing. Did Asia have different forms of government? Yeah. Did Africa have different forms of government? Did Native Americans? Yes. All of these groups had found ways to socially organize successfully, in many ways, much more successfully than Europeans, might I add. China, the longest continuous civilization in in human history. And yet he is just dismissing them. In this just this 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 little footnote. Okay. He goes on to say, such a uniform and constant difference could not happen in so many countries and ages if nature had not made an original distinction between betwixt these breeds of men. I want to pause for one more second there. He's now enlightened because maybe a philosopher of about two hundred years earlier would have said God made that distinction, but by merely exchanging God for nature, this guy's freaking brilliant, right? Okay, moving forward. He says, not to mention our colonies, there are Negro slaves dispersed all over Europe of which none ever discovered any symptoms of ingenuity. 
Though low people without education will start up among us and distinguish themselves in every profession. In Jamaica, indeed, they talk of one Negro as a man of parts and learning, but tis likely he is admired for very, very slender accomplishments, like a parrot, a parrot who speaks a few words plainly. What do you think of that? I mean, you've heard me do this in class over and over again, and it pisses me off every time, if our <laughs> listeners could not tell, that this guy we celebrate in Western philosophy, this these are his thoughts. We respect this man? Come on. But I mean, is this how you're going to look back on Zizek in 200 years based on his everything? Yeah, I have the luxury of hindsight, and I don't care. <laughs> you already know I have certain feelings on some moral absolutes. Like, don't be, like, don't enslave people. You know you're doing it. I don't care if all his other British friends are doing this in the 18th century, and he gets to live this life of luxury because all his friends are enslaving people, and he gets this nice commodity-laced society. The only reason – you actually know why he knows it's wrong? Because he goes to the lengths here to justify it. Oh, yeah. That's how you know he knows yeah. it's wrong. This sure. fucker. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I mean I just gave – sorry, listeners. I, this guy upsets me a great deal. I mean, like you say, it's just justification. It's crafting a narrative to justify the atrocities that are going on. And in this case, we know that he knows better. He knows about, like Jared said, they, at this point, they know about the cultures that have been going, that exist in other parts of the world. There's no excuse here by now. He knows and he knows exactly what he's doing. And he's intelligent enough to know that he's telling a story here. A very intentional one that keeps his privilege intact. Mm-hmm. Although and- I think it's key to. We can't really ignore that passage without talking about the enlightenment concept of human nature, right? He says, well, nature did this, so it must be justified, which is for all of its sort of the good things that came out of the enlightenment, the one of the overshadowing concepts is this racism based on this concept of human nature and how absolutely oppressive that is. Where'd that come from? Well, let's find out. So you'll note that David Hume at some point noted, uh, what he said, four or five, he did say four or five different kinds of human beings that right there shows about the fake science of the enlightenment period. Um, again, science for our listeners out there, and this usually pisses them off quite a bit, but I don't care. Science, is just as easy uh, to manipulate as religion or any other ideology. Science is ideological. It promotes a singular worldview, this time based on empirical evidence, but we know as humans we can manipulate that and focus on certain aspects of it, and it is. You can manipulate it. Um, So the science of the time, or immediately preceding David Hume's thoughts on this, by about eh, 20-ish years, two decades, come from a very famous uh, scientist named Carl Linnaeus. Um, and Nick does a whole thing on Carl Linnaeus. I don't know that we need that whole thing for this episode or else we'll be here all day. But real quick, who's this dude? He's a Swedish I mean, he's a scientist. He's a natural scientist. We would like a biologist, we would call him. Okay, he gives us this idea. He more or less invents, quote unquote, invents this idea of taxonomy, um, at least scientific taxonomy. Basically, this idea that we in the West need to take everything that ever exists in the world, plants, animals, whatever it might be, and order it. We need to order it. We have this, the Enlightenment really gets us to want to control and order things because... God, we need to do a whole episode on like the order of things. Yeah, it's so um, bad. Like, we're not... I mean, it's, it is. It, we, we have this idea and we want to order them, as I said in an earlier episode, so that we can either use them or dismiss them or whatever. That's why we want to place them in boxes, literal boxes in the case of like the, the periodic table and shit like that, which again, our listeners are like, what? That's so useful. Well, only useful within the singular lens you've been conditioned to believe in. 
a lens of productivity and efficiency and, and infinite growth. Like, that's part of the problem. But anyway, I digress. Let's get back into U.S. history here. Linnaeus plays a role here in crafting narrative, in this case as a scientist, quote-unquote, scientist, by taking taxonomy. Again, basically the Latin words you see behind an animal species or a plant species or whatever, and he gives us all kinds of different categories, phylums and families and orders and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, all that cool stuff you learned in like eighth grade bio. Anyway, he gives us all this, but here's what we often forget when we teach why taxonomy exists or how it came into being. Carl Linnaeus went out of his way to also order human beings. He ordered, and again, he did not believe Homo sapiens sapiens were like one thing. There were different subsets of Homo sapiens. And he did this again, even though he himself is not like a slave owner or whatever, he understands that he has privilege based on the system that exists. So he's rationalizing it for himself using his discipline. He breaks them up into four different subsets. And that's what I want to focus on. And this is more or less what he had to say. In this case, our, our, our recollection or our copy is coming uh, from a, uh, a science book known as Human Evolutionary Genetics. So it's giving us basically a, a Cliff's Notes version of Linnaeus's findings here. Yeah, his actual work. I think it came out it's in just, it's 1735. This one is 1735. I want to say the first edition was 1732. Oh, okay. But it's Natural Systems, if you want to look yeah, it up. It's incredibly famous yeah. if you... Yeah, if you done any dabbling in biology you've heard of it a million times okay this is what he breaks us up into homo sapien americanus or dimness americanus uh in in or excuse me not dimness diurnus Woo! uh need my reading glasses diurnus uh americanus basically americanus is not talking because united states doesn't exist yet he's talking about the indigenous people of the americas he says americanus is red with black hair and a scanty beard, uh, obstinate, free, uh, free, painted with fine red lines and regulated by customs. This is what he has to say about Americanus. So again, this oversimplistic description of what an indigenous person of the Americas might look like. And here we have it. Like he doesn't say what you do with this, but it's insinuated, regulated by customs. That right there is a loaded statement. What does that mean when he is describing uh, basically indigenous people of the Americas? Regulated well, I don't want to customs. do that because you're about to give it away in the next bullet. So I just want to let it read on its own and then we'll compare that one to the previous one. Okay, I'm actually going to skip that one and then come back to okay, that one last. Okay, time. Okay, this is what he has to say about Asiaticus. Asiaticus. These, this, is, this is science, guys. This is science. Yellow, melancholy, Black hair, brown eyes, severe, haughty, stingy, science guys, wears loose clothing, governed by opinions. Since this is not a podcast that's going to focus a whole lot on Asia, I am going to just pick this one apart right now. This is in the 1730s. Europe had conquered or colonized massive parts of the world, but they were still struggling to gain a foothold in conquering or exploiting Asia. And because of this, Asians, if it must be, as he says here, stingy and no, governed I think by it's opinion. because of their loose clothing. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I mean, again, this is crafting narrative. So we, we see what, what's going on here. This is science, but the ideology and then the material world around that ideology is clouding this abilities to this guy's ability to be an objective scientist. Mm-hmm. He is using his discipline to rationalize the horrible society around him. Or for him, it's probably really good, but the horrible things that his society is doing. This is related directly to our episode right now. 
Homo, or not Homo, he called them Diurnus Africanus. This is his description. Black, cunning, phlegmatic, black curly hair, women without shame and lactate profusely, anointed with grease, ruled by impulse. That is his description of these human beings at the peak of the transatlantic slave trade. And this is a scientist. I I keep saying it because I, I don't think we, we give enough gravity to the ability of individuals to manipulate what we call science. Um, this is how he's describing them. They're cunning, black curly hair, throwing in the women for lactating profusely. What does that even mean? I mean, I, I mean, we've done some research and this is like some people, some philosophers or some philosophers, some scholars have called this part of the hypersexualization that uh, Europe was guilty of regarding um, Africans mm-hmm. uh, at the time. But yes, anointed with grease, ruled by impulse, ruled by impulse right off the bat reveals these people must be what? Subjugated. Held in subjugation. It also alludes to the fact that they're wild, right? And we have to, we have to civilize them. It's like we're doing this out of the goodness of our hearts, which is common to the narrative. You know what I mean? Linnaeus goes on to say regarding Diurnus Europius, that they are white, with long flowing hair, blue eyes, sanguine, muscular, inventive, covered with tight clothing, and governed by law. Of course, they're perfect. They're perfect. Perfect little white angels. What do you make of this? Again, this is the one that we use the most, and this is the one that shocks uh, our students the most in a classroom. This this basic breakdown of, again, hard science, breaking Homo sapiens down into these four subsets, and then using them to justify, in the case of Americanus, Native Americans, they're only ruled by custom. Nothing they have is valid. Then, of course, in the in, 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 in regarding Asians, they're governed by opinion and they're stingy because we haven't conquered their shit yet. And then, of course, regarding Africans, they are uh, uh, they're cunning and they're impulsive, so they must be controlled and then, of course, Europe, Europeans. We are governed by law. We're rational thinkers. We have long flowing locks and we're beautiful. Like, I mean, it, it, it almost seems like a joke. And it yet this was reality. so much about our, our, at the time, still to this day, the celebration of law and rule of law. And the fact that he takes time to point out for every single one of these regulated by customs, regulated by opinions, right? Ruled by impulse. And on and on until we finally get to the whites being governed by law, which is so much superior than any of the others. I mean, it just go, it just feeds the narrative. And again, I must stress that this might be one quote-unquote man's – I don't know why I've quote-unquoted a man like he is a man. He was definitely a, a person. <laughs> it's weird. I'm weird sometimes. Anyway, all right. This 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 guy's opinion – and yet, but his opinion, given his status in society as a respected scientist and eventually publishing this grandiose work that basically gives the world modern taxonomy, this is stature. He is a major player. Even if that might not have been his, been his, his intention, if you were of European or later on American, because this was what, of, of, uh, if you were either European or American and of status and educated, this is your sole education on science, on biology. So you are taught that this is hard fact. This is what you believe. This is the delivery of information, the production of knowledge, so to speak. And when you tie that to the philosophy of Hume, you now have two quote unquote backing sources on ra- that rationalize your owning of slaves. 
And I'm not joking when I say this. Again, eventually the Americans would be reading this. If those of you doing the math at home, 1732 through 35 on Linnaeus, 1750, whatever it was on David Hume. Yes, the architects of this nation were the ones learning this as fact. The George Washingtons, very proud slave owners. The Thomas Jeffersons, very proud slave owners, right? These people that we celebrate, and I cannot stress this enough, owned human beings. I will continue to beat this to death in this podcast. Owned human beings. Yeah, it's important for us to understand. We're not just cherry-picking random racist sources here. Like, Linnaeus like we said, is the father of modern taxonomy still to this day. Obviously, this portion has been delegitimized, but still to this day, we use Linnaeus's taxonomy. And like we said, this became one of the most prominent scientific publications for a century after he wrote it. And like Jared said, if you were privileged growing up in Europe or the Americas, this is what you, this was your science textbook. Essentially, this is what you were being taught. Uh, was fact. So we're, we're picking the works that were hugely influential in crafting the narrative and the ideologies and the sciences of the time. Uh, we can't let religion off the hook and I never will. Uh, so, um, let's talk about how religion also works its way into this ideological construction. Again, these are different forms of story. So you can cover all your bases here. You're more into the sciences. We got Linnaeus. You're more in the philosophies. We got Hume. Well, of course we know Christianity was heavily used to rationalize, as we talked about in the last episode, the oppression of people. And one of their favorite go-tos, especially in the Catholic church specifically, was the curse of Ham. In Old Test, it's the Old Testament book of Genesis, uh, verses 9, uh, 920 through 27, posit that the patriarch, Noah, placed a curse on Ham's son, Canaan, for what remains to this day hotly debated reasons. Regardless, the curse justified Israelite subjugation of the Canaanites. It gained steam, not coincidentally, in the 15th and 17th century, which is like the peak of the transatlantic slave trade. And this curse is often cited by church and lay leadership throughout Europe and its colonies as justification for subjugation of those with black skin. So to give you like a quick example from like one of the sources, Friar or Fray Prudencio de Sandoval really got famous for this. He mentioned in 1604, this is a quote verbatim from him, who can deny that in the descendants of the Jews, there persists and endures the evil inclination of their ancient ingratitude and lack of understanding, just as in Negroes, there persists the inseparable quality of their blackness. This guy's being anti-Semitic and racist at the same time. It's like a double whammy of awfulness here by the Catholic Church. What do you think of that? When is this? 1635? Uh, 1604. 1604, yeah. Yeah. It's the double whammy. Mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism, racism, mash them together. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this isn't uncommon. As much as I think it's ridiculous, this is not uncommon in many of the religious narratives of the time. Of the time? I, 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 I hope that it was more common back then. Obviously, it still exists to this day. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say uh, there are certain places teaching these things. Okay, anyway, um, all kidding aside, we have to stress this. Like this is, again, we, we're covering at this point the sciences, the religion, the philosophy, this whole enlightenment era, all of these new narratives, these the, the way we tell stories. And again, these are a, a form of storytelling to protect or pr- promote, or in this case, found ideology. Are This is the production of knowledge that, again, 
creates the the basically the society that is okay doing these things in this case enslaving human beings and doing everything from flogging to throwing them overboard to placing iron muzzles on them to in the case of certain plantation owners actually a whole lot of them uh raping uh their female servants like these are the things that that they they have to tell themselves and they have numerous places to go to make themselves feel okay about this. If we transfer this to modern society, we shouldn't even do that now. That'll take us on a whole different tangent on this podcast. But for the listeners out there, I want them to reflect on all of the ways that they receive information, whether it's the K through 12 system, whether it's uh, the echo chambers of social media, whether it is mass media, whether it is our film, and to really consider what they're being told and how many of their thoughts do they really think that are original are not and how that is a conditioning process to rationalize their bad behavior, right? Just buy a Prius. I'm not doing anything to the planet. I'm. Oh my God. Anyway, back. What would you say? Let's just take a second yeah, to talk about. We ask ourselves, how could slavery possibly have been a thing? How could the slave owners possibly have done these things? Well, as Jared just explained, you have to consider that in the time that they lived, every knowledge that they were receiving was justifying this social arrangement. This ideology had been carefully crafted. This narrative had been, had been invented to justify the subjugation of the Africans. I mean, holy. So like Jared just said, think about all of the knowledges that you are digesting on a daily basis here right now, whether it's social media or film or you're in a university classroom or whatever it is, the books that you're reading. And think about the atrocities that you might be committing right now that are just justified based on those stories that you are digesting, the science that is being presented as fact. The, it, and on and on. And, and on. for those of you that are questioning Nick's use of the word atrocity, I want to pause and I want you to go look at basically, honestly, the tags on the clothes you're wearing right this very second. Find out where they were produced, how they were produced. I want you to look at how the, the, basically the device, whatever it's a phone, a computer, a television, however you're listening to us right now, where was that produced? How was it produced? What do you tell yourself? What kind of mental gymnastics do – and Nick and I are guilty of this too. We are not better. Yeah, let's say the, yeah, we're, the, we're, the microphone we're recording on right now I'm yeah. sure was made using certain circumstances. And all of it is based on some at least degree of ethical or moral bankruptcy. So again, that's 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 part of it. All right. Anyway, back to the episode. Transatlantic slave trade. Let's stay focused, man. Let's stay focused. Ideology. So we found out how the oppressor can, again, navigate the ideological discourse here of uh, subjugation. What does it mean for the subjugated? So we're going to be very serious again here for a second as we are going to hear from the voices of the subjugated here. This source comes to us, again, I am referring to Autobiography of a People, edited by Herb Boyd. It is three centuries of African-American history told by those who lived it. And I must stress, again, if you did not hear the first version of this episode, Nick and I are both fully aware that we are coming from a point of privilege, trying to, to at least unearth the voices of the subjugated of the past. And we understand the reconciliation of that is quite difficult but these these sources need to be heard and 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 our podcast is one vehicle to get them out to more and more people okay so this is from old elizabeth again this is a primary source and she is a slave and again just like the other ones i'm not going to read it front to back i'm going to focus on powerful excerpts she says, in the 11th year of my age, my master sent me to another farm, several miles from my parents, brothers, and sisters, which was a great trouble to me. At last, I grew so lonely and sad, I thought I should die. So now, of course, we're talking the slave, 
we're we're off the the boat now. We're not talking about the 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 accounts of being on the boat. We're talking about what happened upon the immediacy of individuals arriving here and ripped from family. That's not just ripping from family in Africa. Families were intentionally fractured and broken up here on the plantations in the slave stockades. That was intentional because again, because of the rationalization process of these storytellers and the people that want to consume this information, they did not see these people as individuals or humans. They have dehumanized them. So are you saying our country has a history of separating children from their families? Weird. Huh. We're founded upon it. Okay. Moving on. (laughs) Turn on the news, y'all. Okay. At parting, my mother told me that I had nobody in the wild world to look to but God. Okay, now we're seeing ideology play its role. These words fell upon my heart with ponderous weight and seemed to add to my grief. I went back, repeating as I went, none but God in the wide world. On reaching the farm, I found the overseer was displeased at me for going without his liberty. He tied me with a rope and gave me some stripes of which I carried the marks for weeks. So she took off. She couldn't deal with being separated so from her family. So she ran back. I guess I should have prefaced that quote that way. She ran back to try and find her family, and uh, eventually they make her go back to the plantation she was sold to, and she's whipped for it. But this whole time, we see the role of God being uh, part of this, like basically this, It's in this case, it's providing hope, I suppose we could say. But again, this is the God of the oppressor that is being used as the channel for hope. Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me, I have never thought of this before, but of the idea of the Stoic subject, King James during in divine right, etc. If you want freedom, look to God, you know. Right. We f- we move on a little bit further from old Elizabeth. She says, I did not speak much until I had reached my 42nd year. 42 years old. Not a lot of talking. Which, again, that's important. The less you spoke, the less you stood out, the more likely you were not to get what? Yeah. I mean, talk about silencing voices in real life. You know what I mean? Eventually, she is given some freedom of movement. And she goes on a journey. And she goes from one religious professor to another, religious professor to another, inquiring of them what ailed me. This this dissatisfaction. Why she just couldn't be okay with the oppressor's story. She wasn't. She was not okay with it. She kept asking too many questions of masters, of fellow slaves, and she was being seen as bothersome. So she goes on this journey, inquiring of these professors what ailed me, but all of these I could find none who could throw any light upon such impressions. They all told me there was nothing in scripture that would sanction such exercises. It was hard for men to travel, and what would women do? These things greatly discouraged me and shut up my way and caused me to resist the spirit. After going to all uh, that were accounted pious and receiving no help, I returned to the Lord, feeling that I was nothing and knew nothing, and wrestled and prayed to the Lord that he would fully reveal his will and make the way plain. So she does not receive answers from slaves, from professors, from masters. So she ends up, basically everyone tells her, turn back to God. I mean, there's a lot there, but let's keep moving. Uh, we As we keep moving further... She keeps asking more and more questions and she's really engaged with this idea of spirituality and her role within like the larger cosmic sphere. She says she started holding meetings. I was held meetings. I also held meetings in Virginia. The people there would not believe that I, a colored woman, could preach. 
And moreover, as she had no learning, they strove to imprison me because I spoke against slavery. And being brought up, they asked by what authority I spake. And if I had been ordained, I answered, not my, not by the commission of men's hands. If the Lord had ordained me, I needed nothing better. I'm using this passage, even though this passage should probably appear in a future episode regarding, like, again, agency once we're on the plantations. But I, I want to introduce it here before we get to that episode. What we're seeing here, and this is important is the silver lining of the ideology if, and Nick talked about like the editing and whittling out of certain passages in, in the Bible or in the Gospels, if you can then exhume some of that knowledge, the stories of liberation that appear in the Bible, and then turn them around on the oppressor, you can become old Elizabeth, where you can now use the religion, the ideology in this case, as a message of liberation. That's important. Mm -hmm. It's not black and white, it's gray. Um, we also find out here that there are other people, eventually by the time uh, Elizabeth is performing, that have different views on race and slavery. And so I don't want to call out all uh, English settlers or eventually what we would call Americans or other demographics that came, Scots, Irish, Germans, etc., as like inherently racist. And the reason I – the only reason I want to highlight this is to show that there were other people of that time period that knew – the society was being founded on the wrong morals and ethics. And the reason I like to emphasize that is I'm often accused of using my present morals and ethics to judge people of the past as, as I already did in this episode, Jefferson, Washington. But you know what? I actually believe I have every right to do so because they were judged by other people at that time and they were called out on their moral and ethical hypocrisies. And a group of people are revealed here by old Elizabeth. I may here remark that while journeying through the different states of the Union, I met with many of the Quaker friends and visited them and their families, and I received much kindness and sympathy and no opposition from them in the prosecution of my labors. And at that time, after this life of being enslaved, she is now preaching, using biblical discourse to challenge uh, the slave system that was in America. She is an early abolitionist that is often overlooked when we're talking about the Frederick Douglasses and so on and so forth. This is important because, again, like I said, when we are judging these people in the past and, and our listeners might be thinking this at home and getting mad about it or turning off the podcast if you already have, whatever. When I'm angry at the David Humes or when we then pick on the architects of this country for their feelings on race and we're using our modern ethics and morals, we are not. We are not. There were people that lived during this time period that called them out for this. And there are numerous revelations of this. We'll talk about this when we even talk about the way women's roles. And Abigail Adams is like, hey, remember the ladies. And John Adams is like, hard pass. I'm paraphrasing there. He didn't say hard pass. But anyway, like this is – we cannot let these people off the hook as much as we want because they wrote a couple of documents. I mean, come on. I mean, let's be real here. We cannot let them off the hook because, again, we're dealing to this day – with the society they set up, with a, a society still heavily predicated on exploitation. We might not have slaves in the United States anymore, but again, I'll, I'll refer back to what I said. Look at that tag on the back of your shirt, the bottom of your boots. Look inside that computer or that phone battery. It's still a thing. It's not over. What kind of mental gymnastics are we, myself, you, Nick, jumping through to rationalize our behavior? Um. So that's part of it here. Okay. Um, I want to finish this off. We see a little bit of a, a, uh, a window into agency here. 
um, with old Elizabeth to continue the idea of agency. And I guess I'll give our listeners a taste of what, what we mean by agency. So agency defined, and sadly enough, I've been through a lot of definitions and I, I hate to admit it, but Wikipedia's is actually the best. Agency is the capacity, condition, or state of acting or of exerting power. Well, we already know what the oppressors have been doing. And one of the problematic ways that we frame this history is that the people that are oppressed had no agency, that they were like either subjugated minds or subjugated bodies that were just, again, forced to go through the motions. And that's another thing we want to challenge in this podcast because it's bullshit. Old Elizabeth, right right off the bat, is evidence that the people that were experiencing subjugation had agency. They were numerous and countless different attempts at gaining power back to themselves and autonomy and all of the different ways that uh, these people acted to gain their own agency and challenge the systems of oppression against them are often also subjugated in humanity or and especially in U.S. history. So if we are willing to subjugate the voices of these people, we obviously are subjugating the people themselves. Why do you think agency is so rarely taught in U.S. history classes? Oftentimes, U.S. history classes will teach that slavery was a thing and it was bad. That's... That is a thing that is happening. It's usually not done in great detail for obvious reasons. Uh, they don't want people to feel too bad about the United States. But people are aware it was a thing. So it's not one of those that is wholly subjugated. But the one thing they always do subjugate is all of the different forms of agency, both slaves and free blacks and even sympathetic whites performed to liberate them. Why do we subjugate that knowledge? Because if we're taught the history of people fighting against the system continuously from its beginning, it just further delegitimizes that system and delegitimizes the society on which it was built. I mean, I've legitimately heard this over specifically the last two and a half years. I'm not sure if there's a coincidence there from certain sectors of society that many of the people should be grateful for their time as slaves because they were brought from uh, horrible conditions in Africa or wherever they might have been and that they were given this new religion and this new way of thinking and they have been quote-unquote civilized like that is still i mean we a just narrative. heard in the last episode that i forget his name you can tell me when i after i say this but he was enslaved in africa and then realizes that he would in equiano. a heartbeat yeah. go back to that slave that version of slavery yeah equiano yeah yeah but i mean even in the modern context we're still hearing this this again completely ludicrous narrative um anyway back to the idea agency Again, the capacity, condition, or state of acting or of exerting power. And slaves showed numerous different examples of agency. We're going to do episodes on that because part of this podcast is not just depressing everybody uh, with all of the bad things that uh, uh, whatever people in positions of power in the United States history have done. It's also to exhume or uh, uh, the voices of those who have fought the system, the true, again, heroes of this nation state's historiography and those heroes whose voices are also subjugated. And the reason for that, obviously, is we do not want to get people fired up and teach them how they can actually challenge the systems of power in the past and how many of those ways of challenging the system might be applicable today. So just I mean, that part on. of our motivation for doing this entire podcast series is to tell those stories of resistance that have gone on through the dawn of this country. So slaves is just one example. I mean, even after we get past slavery, we're going to talk about civil rights, etc. Another one that's incredibly compelling that we don't hear nearly enough is the workers' struggle throughout time uh, that often gets ignored. That's hugely impactful for our lives to this day. 
So one of the ways that we frame this agency is particularly when it comes to racial struggle in United States history. And we're not going to get to a lot of them today because we just don't have a lot of counts of what happened during the transatlantic slave period. A lot of this agency that we'll be talking about will not be in this episode. We're just introducing it now. It will end up, the first real examples we'll see, uh, or the first really in-depth examples we'll see will happen when we're actually talking about resistance on the plantation, when we dig a little bit deeper in a future episode, in one of the future episodes on plantation life. But regardless, we're going to go in order of how we kind of see these things. So I'm actually going to list them all, and I'll probably keep listing them in future episodes so people kind of remain or are reminded of the different forms of agency exerted um, regarding uh, racial inequity in the United States. The first, of course, would be, and we're going to do one super briefly today, violent rebellion, where slaves rebelled against directly either the ship captains in the case of the Amistad later on in the 19th century or rebelled against the plantation. We're also going to see mass slave organization clandestinely. That is agency, the transmission of ideas. Um through things like song. I mean, again, ideas were transmitted through song. Plantation owners would look out on the plantation fields and hear people singing songs. They didn't realize they were actually transmitting information, messages. I mean, ah, it's so, so innovative. So good. Okay, anyway, slowdowns regarding labor. Eventually using the legislative role of the judicial system, which will also be in one of the really upcoming future episodes of all of the different ways that many um, people of color were able to win their freedom through actually using the judicial system against itself. Um, and that happened obviously a hell of a lot more in the North than it did in the South. Um, but you guys get where we're going with this. There would be appeals to political leaders. One of the most famous we'll dissect in a future episode is Benjamin Banneker's letter to Thomas Jefferson. Propaganda campaigns. There would also be the creation and messaging through pop culture. Pop culture would become a channel to challenge systems of power. Some people would ultimately leave. This is often overlooked when we think about slavery, but many slaves did find ways to escape, and they fled. They fled usually to three main places, right? One would be eventually British Canada after the War for Independence when it was British Canada. A lot would flee to Spanish Florida before it became part of the United States um, because Spain was, in theory, liberating slaves. And then another, one of the more popular forms of exit that is super overlooked because it is two oppressed peoples working together, many slaves found safe harbor by joining Native American or indigenous groups. In fact, and I may have brought them up in a previous episode, but an entire group of Seminole are known to this day as the Black Seminole because they accepted so many runaway slaves. Not every First Nation was this way. Those of you that kind of pat yourself on the back sometimes for your one-eighth Cherokee, which seems to be every white person I know, but... Sorry, tongue-in-cheek joke there. Anyway, the Cherokee, on the other hand, actually caught slaves and enslaved them themselves. So again, some First Nations uh, accepted and freed slaves. Others actually helped the dominant culture reabsorb their slaves. Anyway, exit is a way that slaves would uh, uh, would find freedom. Um, of course, through education. We're going to be talking Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, David Walker in the future, these self-educated men that became prominent abolitionists. Uh, military service when it came to the war for independence, uh, challenging of ideologies, and eventually by the time we get to formal civil rights, nonviolent direct action. I just listed 12 different forms of agency that over, of course, the entirety of this podcast we're going to be focusing on. And while, like I said, this one is framed around racial issues, many of these will be applicable to other issues in 
uh, U.S. history, whether we're talking about labor, whether we're talking about gender inequity, uh, whether we're talking about uh, sexual, sexual sexuality inequality, these are the things that we're going to be focusing on. So again, we'll be repeating this list over and over again, but I think it's important that we kind of keep this in mind. Okay, so without further ado, our first like real example regarding uh, agency um, in what would become the United States, Violet Rebellion, Stono, South Carolina. And now I am going to read specifically from blackpast.org's entry on the Stono Rebellion. So I must preface this. This is not my content. Um, so this is their content. So if you want to visit, and they have so many other amazing resources. Yeah, here. we'll put a link in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, this is not my content. This is their content. So I am going to read it verbatim with no like little Jared quips in there this time. Let's, okay. let's be real. There's going to be Jared quips. No, I'm going to read it straight. On Sunday, September 9th, 1739, the British colony of South Carolina was shaken by a slave uprising that culminated with the death of 60 people. Led by an Angolan named Jemmy, a band of 20 slaves organized a rebellion on the banks of the Stono River. After breaking into Hutchinson's store, the band, now armed with guns, called for their liberty. As they marched, overseers were killed and reluctant slaves were forced to join the company. The band reached the Adisto River where white col uh, colonists descended upon them, killing most of the rebels. The, so their Ugh, I can't even read. the survivors were sold off to the West Indies. The immediate factors that sparked the uprising remain in doubt. A malaria epidemic in Charleston, uh, which caused general confusion throughout Carolina, may have influenced the timing of the rebellion. The recent passage of the Security Act by South Carolina Colonial Assembly may also have played a role. The act required all white men to carry firearms to church on Sunday. Thus, the enslaved leaders of the rebellion knew their best chance for success would be during the time of the church services when armed white males were away from the plantations. After the Stono Rebellion, South Carolina authorities moved to reduce provocations for rebellion. Masters, for example, were penalized for imposing excessive work or brutal punishments of slaves, and a school was started so that slaves could learn Christian doctrine. In a colony that already had more blacks than whites, the assembly also imposed a prohibitive duty on the importation of new slaves from Africa and the West Indies. Authorities also tightened control over the enslaved. The assembly enacted a new law requiring a ratio of one white for every ten blacks on any plantation and passed the Negro Act of 1740, which prohibited enslaved people from growing their own food, assembling in groups, earning money they, rather than their owners, could retain or learning to read. That is the entire entry right there. So now I will come back and this will be myself and, and, and Nick's content. And also now that I'm looking at it, this comes to us from Claudia Sutherland. So again, we always want to credit our sources here. Okay. Back to what we're talking about. When I when I went through that, that, that overly brief description of Stono, the Stono Rebellion, and now I'll add some content. One of the things that these rebels wanted to do was to get – uh, Jemmy was going to lead this band of slaves basically to Spanish Florida. The goal was to get to Spanish Florida. And I must stress this to my listeners. It's not because the Span Spain was being super nice at this time and like was nice to people by, by the 1739. They're not. The only reason they would willingly free some of these slaves, these African slaves, is because they're coming from their rival Britain. They're British slaves, right? And so they would be, in theory, promoting this idea of coming to Spanish Florida for liberation to hurt the British economy. So again, Spain not being like, 
super nice uh, and, and, and charitable here. They're doing this for their own kind of selfish reasons. But that's where the rebels were hoping to go. They were hoping to get to uh, to, to Spanish Florida. Um, and it wouldn't even be like the first time. It was the first time that it gained a little bit of success. Uh, but we have an account here, um, an anonymous letter to a Mr. Boone in London that dates back, uh, this is a primary source from June 24th, 1720. This is from a, a clearly a white source that, that does not like the rebellions, but this is from like 19 years before Stono. So our anonymous letter to Mr. Boone back in London says, I'm now to acquaint you that very lately we have had a very wicked and barbarous plot of the design of Negroes rising with the design to destroy all the white people in the country and then take the town, Charlestown, in full body. But it pleased God it was discovered, and many of them taken prisoners, and some burnt, some hanged, and some banished. I think it proper to tell you, Mr. Percival at home, that his slaves was the principal rogues, and tis my opinion, his only way will be to sell them out singly, or else I am doubtful his interest in slaves will come to little for want or strict management, since work does not agree with them. Fourteen of them are now at Savannah Town, and sent for white and Indians will be executed as soon as they come down. They sought to get to St. Augustine, that's Florida, and would have got to got a Creek fellow, an indigenous Creek person to be their guide, again, in this case, liberating uh, uh, slaves, um, to have been their pilot. But the Savannah garrison took the Negroes up half-starved, and the Creek Indians could not join them or be their pilot. I mean, wh- I mean, what are your thoughts on these early rebellions, or in the case of the 1720 rebellion of Charlestown, like the planned rebellion that never really broke out because the Creek Indians were prevented, um, and that... that from helping and they were barred from getting to Florida. What do you, what are your thoughts? I mean, on there we were realized? attempted rebellions and fighting of the oppression nonstop. I mean, from day one, we even talked about when I did the episode on whiteness, the fact that these laws were put into place was because continuously the slaves were trying to escape and to rebel against their servitude. Sometimes violently, sometimes in all of the different ways that you listed prior they were constantly fighting against this enslavement. There was never a time where the slaves didn't express agency against what was going on. And that's key for us to understand when we're talking about this history. And it's often overlooked when it's taught in every level of education, which is very intentional. Yeah. I mean, this this first version of agency, and again, we're only doing this one real brief example, the Stoto, South Carolina Rebellion, and again, the preceding attempted rebellion in 1720 that, that our letter kind of revealed to us. But these are just two examples, and Nick's right. This is constant. Uh, we try to, you know, I mean, this is a constant situation um, during this time period. And what I think it reveals to us, and like I said, we're kind of really introducing it now in this episode. We haven't been able to do it as much in past episodes because they have been about subjugation and oppression, and there's just less sources on the agency of the oppressed. But now, starting right now with this episode, we can now build this into the podcast. And we've overlooked it a little bit, but but again, when we're talking about Columbus and his ex- extermination of the Taino Arawak, like that there's just not a lot left there for us to discuss regarding agency. We're going to see it now. Moving forward, all of these episodes will also not just be denigrating the mythology of the United States, but it will also now be uh, basically giving credence and credit and voice to the agents of change from all of these various different eras and movements. I mean, just as an example of evidence of how powerful the narrative is that there was no resistance whatsoever, like this is just the way that it was, I hear all of the time, and Jared's even been there for a couple of these instances, where students are like legitimately ask, well, why didn't they fight back? 
If slavery was so bad, why didn't the slaves fight against their enslavement? Oh my God, they fought all of the time. Yeah. Nonstop. The fact that, that we have been told or want to believe that that was not the case. I, and again, we hear this in academic higher education classrooms. Like this is still a prevailing narrative. I mean, shit, Kanye, uh, they chose to be slaves. If you're slaves for 400 years, you chose, like, oh my God, are you serious? I don't remember that. Like, I, I know it was an issue, but I kind of yeah. avoid, like, engaging in that type of discourse. Like, but that's, that's kind of how... what he said. That's what he said. No, that's exactly what he said. Oh. They chose to be slaves. And he meant it? 100%. Look at the video. It's, uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. Wow. But that just proves how much of this history is never told. Huh. Okay. Anyway. Not that I would say Kanye is like the most intelligent individual ever, but oh my God, it just proves that people do not get this history. Was he trying to be provocative intentionally? No, dude. I'll show you the video after we stop recording. I'll show you. Because sometimes I think people are just trying to be provocative intentionally just to get people to think. I'll show you. Okay. You'll see. It's it's grosser than you can even imagine. Okay. Because sometimes he does some pretty interesting... No, it's not one of these. I would let him off the hook if it was one of these, like, I'm trying to be famous and rock the boat. This is, like, a legitimate grossness. Like, his first album was super, like... You know what? Never mind. I was super good. Never mind. We're getting way off the (laughs) right. Moving on! Oh, musically, he's a genius, but... uh, Okay. All right. Back to... uh, Maybe we should just do, like, a a pop culture podcast where we just... But uh, whatever. That's a whole different... That's a whole different... Whatever. You're... Yeah. We're just going to talk about Wu-Tang the whole time. Jared has a Wu-Tang t-shirt on because you guys can't see us, but yeah. It's an obsession. It's his favorite. Yeah. It's an obsession. Uh, Kanye is so much better than Wu-Tang. If the the RZA ever listens, maybe we can, like, hang out for a minute if you're there. Okay. Never mind. I God, I hope he has better things to do than listen to our podcast. (laughs) Uh, okay. No, for real. We do need to kind of close this out. So it is nice to end on a high note. And that was kind of our intention is we know if you have been a consistent listener already through this, this handful of episodes that sometimes it can get a little heavy. Sometimes uh, you might even find our framing or our argumentation a little bit grating. And thanks for persevering through with us. But one of the things we're hoping to now add, because we're starting to get more primary source evidence of it is the agency. So we can close out these episodes with high notes. And in this case, yeah, I'm going to be blunt. These rebellions for me are a high note. This is showing the agency of an oppressed people to overcome their ideological conditioning, their material circumstances to fight for themselves, to fight for themselves and to fight for others just like them. And so that to me is going out on a high note. And we're going to talk more about these examples. Do you have anything else to add? Again, we've done two back-to-back episodes on the transatlantic slave trade. Anything else to add? I just want to add that we chose in this case to include Stono, and it's actually probably one of the most well-known rebellions of this time, even though it's little known. Um, but there are other examples you guys can research on your own of, like Jared mentioned, the plot in Charleston that was uh, found out and never came to fruition. There's so many examples of things like that going on and individual cases of rebellion. This is such a common thing from this era. We just chose Stono as one example to give you guys, but there's so much more out there. So I highly suggest that you go out and just, I mean, you can literally just Wikipedia this type of research and you will get so many examples that you have never heard of because they are not taught in our education system. And for those of you looking for some of the more famous rebellions, we're just not there yet. We are going to get to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Nat Turner fans, he's coming. It's coming. Yeah. So yeah, like we're just Even not there. We're going to do John Brown. We're going yeah. to do. Yeah. We're not. Get, we're not there yet. We will be getting there. Just we're not there yet. We wanted to focus mostly on the trade itself, and then we'll get to like again the more grounded plantation life and 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 stuff like that in future episodes. So.
Yep. Other than that, uh, take us out. Where else can you find us? Uh, so you can get us online at revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at revolutionandideology. Check out our YouTube channel where we post all these episodes as well. Um, we're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, do do us a favor though and go on wherever you get the podcast and give us a rating uh, and write a comment if you like what we're doing. That will help more listeners discover us and eventually will give us the time to do more things. You can help if you really uh, like what we're doing. Uh, fund us on Patreon. There's a link on our website and in the YouTube videos on how to do that. Like I said, that will enable us also to have more time to do more research and to put out episodes more frequently. Um, so yeah, I'm Nick Lee. I'm Jared. Till next time. Later.